This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wisher. It's my very great pleasure to be sharing this event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, now, our guest this evening uh, is a Ken Speckle figure to you all. He's a born and bred Edinburgh chap. I mention this because it might not be immediately apparent um, from his accent. And if you're minded to ask what a nice marchment boy like him is doing in an accent like that, um, he might offer in mitigation the fact that he's had a steady grasp on the top of the greasy pole of politics, uh, which found him occupying some of the, the major offices of state in London for the best part of two decades. At UK level, he's variously been Foreign Secretary and Defence Secretary, with a brief detour through the Ministry of Transport, which probably won't detain us. And... Um, <laughs> He was, of course, uh, he was, of course, uh, Secretary of State for Scotland during the reign of the Baroness Thatcher, at which time one of my colleagues, a sketch writer, was prompted to describe him as the Secretary in a state in Scotland. <laughs> Relations with the Iron Lady could not always be filed under cordial, as we will doubtless explore. She was firmly of the opinion that uh, he was the Cabinet's man in Scotland, whilst he cherished the quaint notion that he was Scotland's man in the Cabinet. His travels in both defence and the FCO took him to many faraway places with strange-sounding names and allowed him to deal with some of the most important figures in global politics, like Mikhail Gorbachev, with whom he forged a good working relationship. He was also present at some of the most momentous decisions taken in the UK, including the Falklands War, and he was engaged in an attempt to strike a post-war deal with the Argentinian government. But of course, ladies and gentlemen, every career, however glittering, has its hiccups. And the time he asked a former political acquaintance what he was up to these days, only to discover that he was chatting to the Prime Minister of Belgium, <laughs> probably did little to enhance bilateral relations with that European neighbour. Please welcome Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Uh, Ruth, uh, thank you very much for those very friendly opening comments. Uh, I will not dwell on your references to my uh, accent. I understand you are from the west of Scotland, so allowances, <laughs> allowances have to be made. I was once told the difference between Edinburgh and Glasgow was that in Edinburgh, breeding is good form, but in Glasgow, breeding is good fun. <laughs> I won't quibble with that. <laughs> right. Can I say I am obviously delighted to be here at the Edinburgh Festival as a performer. Uh, I am a, it's not the first time I have performed, I have to tell you, in the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, those of you who may have consulted my biographical details uh, may be unaware that there was an occasion uh, when I once performed in professional opera at the Edinburgh Festival. Now, yes, not only are you slightly surprised, <laughs> My wife, my children, and anyone who has known me or attempt to sing will normally queue up begging me to stop. But uh, it is true that I performed in the Edinburgh Festival in an opera called Dalibor by Smetner at the King's Theatre. And that is the truth. It is nothing but the truth. <laughs> However, I have to confess it's not the whole truth. 
Uh, the whole truth is way back in the 1960s when I was a student at Edinburgh University, the Prague National Opera Company did come to the Edinburgh Festival. They brought their singing cast but they did not bring the non-singing spear carriers. <laughs> and I was a spear carrier never required to open my mouth. It had a marvelous sequel, because years later, when I was a junior minister in the Foreign Office, and I had to go, this is while the Cold War was still going on, and I had to go to Czechoslovakia, which after the Prague Spring was really nasty, hard Stalinist. I did not like the people who were my hosts. And on the final day, there was a lunch in my honor given by the Deputy Foreign Minister of Czechoslovakia. And he made a toast and I had to reply. And I was so irritated, having to be polite to these undesirable people, uh, that I decided to have a bit of fun. And I said, I'm so delighted to be in Czechoslovakia. I always loved being in Prague ever since I was a member of the Prague Opera Company. <laughs> <laughs> I did, this is quite true, and they, the place froze because they all thought, my God, he must have been a defector. <laughs> <laughs> How else? I mean, he must have somehow ended up as a British minister, and their ambassador went white because he thought he was going to be sent to the gulag uh, for not telling them that's who they had uh, invited. Anyway, there we are. Uh, I had always intended one day in the dim, distant future uh, to write my memoirs. Uh, last year, it suddenly came to my awareness that the dim, distant future had arrived, and it might be time to start doing it. And then, of course, the first problem was to try and choose a title. Uh, my publisher was not impressed by the first suggestion I made. I suggested, well, what I'd really like to call it in this modern world is my early years, my, my early life, the first 70 years. And he thought this was very funny, and please, would I go, again, go away and think again? So the, the title you will see is not a very exciting title. It's called Power and Pragmatism. But the reason I've chosen is one that certainly politicians will understand, that most uh, politicians, almost all politicians, regardless of party, fall into one of two categories. They either like to think of themselves as conviction politicians who can be very pragmatic, or pragmatists uh, who have convictions but who don't allow them to dominate uh, their decision-making and try to work out what is the best solution. Now, I worked, as you heard, I had the pleasure to work under Margaret Thatcher uh, for uh, the whole 11 years as a minister in her prime ministership. And she was, of course, the supreme conviction uh, politician uh, of our age. I remember on one glorious occasion in her company, uh, somebody said, Mrs. Thatcher, uh, do you believe in consensus, in seeking consensus? Well, we all knew she certainly did not. Uh, <laughs> But to our astonishment, she said, yes, I do. And we said, you do? She said, yes. And then she thought for a moment and said, I believe there should be a consensus behind my convictions. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was joking at the time, but as the years have gone by, I have realized she was absolutely deadly uh, serious. Now, I have to warn you, if you ever are thinking of buying this book, you won't find it, find it very exciting. Uh, because nowadays, for memoirs to be exciting, you have to do one of two things. You either have to reveal an affair with a former prime minister of either sex, <laughs> which I'm unable to do, uh, or you actually have to make exciting revelations that have never before appeared in the public domain. There are two such things in the book that are public, and I'll comment briefly on each of them this evening. Uh, one of them was the, uh, the detail, as opposed to the event of my difficulties with Margaret Thatcher, the, the various meetings we had over different issues during the time I was Secretary for Scotland in a state, uh, and uh, why that happened and 
how that turned out. But the other was particularly memorable, which uh, Ruth uh, commented on in her introduction, which was the secret negotiations I had in Chevening, where Boris Johnson is now uh, ensconced, uh, with the Argentine foreign minister. Uh, that was the, the main meeting. Uh, the first meeting with him had been on the Iguazu Falls, on the border between uh, Brazil and Argentina, when I crossed the border into Argentina uh, without anyone knowing, apart from the Argentinian government, uh, that I was actually there. So these are, these are uh, high-profile subjects. But the rest of it, if you're involved in foreign policy or in government, it's not actually uh, the stuff of which headlines are made. Uh, it's something well worth remembering. Harold Macmillan was Foreign Secretary for a brief time uh, before he became Chancellor and Prime Minister. And in Harold Macmillan's memoirs, he talks about how foreign ministers are dealing with diplomacy. And he says, because they're dealing with these hugely sensitive issues, their speeches have to hover between the cliché and the indiscretion. And he goes on to say they're either dull or dangerous. <laughs> in my experience, some are both, but that's a, another, another matter worth thinking about. Now, let me mention for a moment uh, the Scottish office and the jobs I did there, both as a junior minister from 1979 to 1983, 82, and then Secretary of State from 86 to 90. A lot of it was pretty serious stuff, a lot of it pretty important stuff. Uh, I have one claim that I don't think anybody else in Scotland can make. I managed to unite Rangers and Celtic fans. <laughs> yes, I managed to get 60,000 of them booing me simultaneously. <laughs> Uh, this is when I was a junior minister in the Scottish office, and at the request of the SFA, the Scottish Football Association, uh, the trouble on the terraces had been so bad, uh, wives, mothers, children were no longer coming, and so the proposal was, at their request, to ban all, the, ban all alcohol from Scottish football matches. The legislation went through, it was not particularly controversial, and I went to the first Rangers-Celtic match where the ban had just come into effect, and before the match began, the police officer in charge of the uh, constabulary uh, said, Minister, would you like to walk around the ground <laughs> <laughs> to see how effective the ban has been? Because they virtually, they weren't in, in law, they were not allowed to search everyone who was coming in unless they had reason to believe they might be carrying alcohol. Well, as far as the police were concerned, they had reason to believe everyone would be carrying <laughs> alcohol. Uh, and so, like an idiot, I agreed to go with the police officer and, of course, the fans were strictly segregated, but some recognized us, or the policeman was in uniform, and the booing began, and it was like a Mexican wave. <laughs> and once we'd started, we had to continue. And I've never been so nervous in my life. <laughs> Football actually dominated, and not dominated, but it influenced also one marvelous day with uh, Margaret Thatcher, because some idiot in the Conservative Party in Scotland thought they would try and make her popular uh, by uh, having a coming to the Scottish Cup final. <laughs> and this was Celtic versus Dundee United at Hamden. And uh, it had been, we tried to keep it very quiet that she would be there, middle of the poll tax controversies. Uh, and the Daily Record got hold of it and said, everybody show their true feelings uh, when she arrives at the director's box, which they did. And uh, that was okay. The match then began and people were sensibly more interested in the football. And then... At half-time, when we all went in for our glasses of lemonade, it had got slightly chillier, and so I saw her suddenly, when we were due to go out again, 
putting on a bright blue overcoat. <laughs> and I said, uh, Margaret, Prime Minister, you, you can't wear that coat. Uh, and she, I was quite impressed. She said, but it's Celtic. Uh, Rangers aren't playing today. And I then gave her, not advice, I gave her the only instruction I'd ever given her, which was, it doesn't matter, take it off. <laughs> <laughs> And she took it off, and I was still very nervous. She was due to present the cup, and it was nil-nil until, uh, um, until extra time. Thank God, Celtic won the winning goal in the last minute. And by the time she presented the cup, she could have been the Pope. There was <laughs> <laughs> nobody minded. So we spirited her out of the building, and away we went. The, the problem I had with Margaret Thatcher, to be serious for just a moment, was uh, that she said in her memoirs, Scotland was the one place that rebuffed Thatcherism. She was actually wrong. They didn't rebuff Thatcherism. We didn't, if I can say it as a Scot, we didn't rebuff Thatcherism. We rebuffed Thatcher. It's an important distinction. Uh, I was in charge of the right to buy for council tenants buying their homes. There was nowhere in Britain where it was more popular. Hundreds of thousands of Scots bought their council houses but still continued voting Labour when the British Telecom and the other privatizations went ahead. The Scots, as well as the English and the Welsh, and queued up to buy their shares, were very interested in all that. But it didn't change the political culture in Scotland, because the, as we all know, in this, well, most of us in this audience, the political culture in, this, in Scotland has always, at least in modern times, uh, been uh, left or centre-left, uh, and that did not change, despite popularity of some individual policies that were being pursued. So uh, there were great problems of that kind, and Margaret Thatcher never really understood the Scottish national identity. Uh, she it was rather curious because she was very conscious of Britain's national identity in the European Union, how that had to be properly understood with all its sensitivities. And she tried to do the same in regard to Scotland. I mean, she was aware that she didn't really fully understand it, she, couldn't, she kept thinking Adam Smith was Scottish, so why can't all the other Scots <laughs> share his views uh, on the capitalist economy and matters of that kind? But she was a phenomenon, and I, I still believe very, very firmly, uh, despite the differences I had with her, that she was the finest peacetime prime minister we had uh, since uh, Churchill uh, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. And I think that much of Britain today, some will disagree with this obviously, but much of Britain, I think, is better as a result of her leadership, certainly in the earlier years. Can I say something about foreign policy, and just before, because I want to get on to the latter part of our discussions and questions. I was privileged to be involved in Gorbachev's first visit uh, to the United Kingdom when he went to see Mrs. Thatcher. And that was hugely important, because until that visit, it was rather like the relations we have with Russia at the moment, but it was even worse. Because we were in the middle of the Cold War, it could have ended up as a hot war, a third world war with nuclear weapons, in a way that today, even with Putin, is extremely improbable and unlikely. And Margaret Thatcher, of course, was the Iron Lady. But she was persuaded by the Foreign Office. She didn't normally like the Foreign Office. She was persuaded by the Foreign Office to try and make contact with this extraordinary young Russian who, at that time, he was on the Politburo. He was not yet leader of the Soviet Union. And most people hadn't heard of him. And as soon as he arrived at Chequers, I was there at the meeting when he arrived, and nobody else in the West had met him. President Reagan hadn't met him. Nobody else knew him. We knew it was different. Because not only was he 
very like a Western politician. He was humorous, he was relaxed, he wasn't covered in muffler and trilby, uh, looking like some waxwork. But his wife came with him, very elegant lady, Raisa. And when Mrs. Thatcher and Gorbachev went off to have meetings together, I had to look after uh, Raisa Gorbachev, the, his wife. And when I remember, I remember vividly taking her into the library at Chequers, which is a very fine uh, library, and she, through the interpreter, said to me something that I would never have heard from any other Soviet wife. She said, I'm so delighted to be in Britain. I've always wanted to be in the country of Hobbes and Locke. <laughs> you know, mentioning two uh, famous English philosophers was not something we got from Soviet wives, never mind uh, their husbands. And it em emphasized this was a new generation of Russian leaders. And the following day, or a couple of days later, my wife and I took the Gorbachevs to a, a theater, Kozivan Tutti at the Colosseum in London, and then we had a supper party afterwards. And we were able, just around a small table, to chat to them. And what was fascinating was, unlike any other Soviet leader I'd ever spoken to before, um, they wanted to chat about just their own lives. How Mikhail Gorbachev, Misha, as he was known, he'd been brought up by his grandparents, and his grandparents were religious believers who had icons on the wall, but as good insurance also had portraits of Lenin and Stalin as well. And he said, when I got married to Raiza, uh, we were not believers, so we got married in a civil ceremony. And my grandmother said, Misha, you have forgotten God, but I shall pray for you. Now, what was extraordinary was not that that had happened, but his willingness to tell us about it. Uh, just in a normal way, which would not be unusual in this country, unheard of in the Soviet Union in those uh, days. And the final point I make about this is that the historic importance of that visit was that Margaret Thatcher came out and said, he is a man with whom I believe we can do business. When she said that to Ronald Reagan, if that had come from anybody else, he would have dismissed it. When it came from the Iron Lady, he said, if Margaret Thatcher believes we can do business with this guy, I'd better get to know him as well. And what that indirectly led to was not just the end of the Cold War, but what was most extraordinary, the Cold War ended and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and all these countries became free countries without a single shot being fired, without anyone being killed. And that is a remarkable event. So I've been fortunate in that my own ministerial experience has covered these two existential problems that the United Kingdom has always had, as, as most countries have to deal with. But in our case, it's been Scotland in the United Kingdom, but it's also been the United Kingdom in the wider world. I think I've spoken for long enough. Let me now hand over to our chair. Careful. I thought, Malcolm, I just might start. Um, as some people in the audience will know, you and Kenneth Clark were caught with your <laughs> microphones down. <laughs> that's Fortunately, that's all that were done. <laughs> And, um, and uh, you were here to say that, oh, I think Kenneth uh, said that, uh, that um, Theresa May was a bloody difficult woman, and you said, but don't forget. No, 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 not quite. Can, shall I tell you what happened? You could tell you me what happened, but I'll tell you that I've dressed for the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're quite, you're quite right, Ruth. Uh, Ken and I did not realize that uh, this was at Sky TV and they'd they put the camera back on again. Now, my good luck, any of you who have met Ken Clark, 
will know that if you're having a conversation with Ken, you cannot get a word in edgeways. <laughs> when he starts a sentence, it always becomes a paragraph. So most of what was recorded was his remarks. Uh, one, of, one was mine, but what he did say was Theresa May, God, she's a, a bloody awful woman, but Difficult. you and I have worked under a bloody awful woman. <laughs> now, actually, he was doing Theresa a compliment. And you said, well, don't forget we, we worked for Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, no, he actually remembered that himself. I have a clip, my dear. Well, well there you are. <laughs> I surrender. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I want to ask you about, well, there are lots of things I want to ask you about, Malcolm, but um, you said earlier on uh, that... Uh, you know, that the job of a foreign secretary required, you know, sensitivity and diplomacy and high-level skills of that nature. So, Boris? Boris? <laughs> Boris, right. I wondered if Boris would come up. Um, uh, when he was appointed, I was asked at the time what my view was, and I said, it's a gamble. And it's a gamble because on all pass form, it's unlikely to succeed. But <laughs> do remember that Boris is not a Donald Trump. Boris is a highly intelligent guy. He's as well-read as anybody in this hall, including ourselves. Uh, he is sophisticated. He is moderate in his opinions. Uh, but the problem that you are referring to, and it is a real problem, his whole reputation for the last 30 years has been built on being a celebrity. And you cannot be a, both a celebrity and a foreign secretary simultaneously uh, because one is looking for a headline, for a bit of humor, a bit of fun, uh, and the other is actually having to try and cope with some of the most difficult problems in the world. Now, it all depends whether Boris can reinvent himself or not. Uh, I don't know whether he can. He's 52. It's pretty difficult to reinvent yourself. Uh, Theresa May can't lose because either he does reinvent himself, in which case she will have a highly competent foreign secretary, or if he doesn't, she'll have a new foreign secretary 12 months from now. That long? Perhaps not. <laughs> I'm, think, on, I'm on his side, you see, so I, I, hope it, it's, I hope it's at least 12 months. It's probably fair to, um, you do talk about Boris here, I mean, I should say, ladies and gentlemen, in fairness to Malcolm, for once, um, that you had to finish the book, of course, just immediately after yeah. Brexit, and you... So you I didn't know he was going to be Foreign Secretary. Well, quite. <laughs> Otherwise, you might not have written this. Um, <laughs> like most people, I share the view that Boris Johnson adds to the sum of human happiness and cheers us up on a dull Monday morning. Whether he's Winston Churchill in waiting may be another matter. Many people would not at present be comfortable with Boris as Chancellor of the Exchequer or Foreign Secretary or with his finger in the button of our trident nuclear missiles. If he aspires to greater national leadership, he must demonstrate he has the potential to be a statesman, not just well, a see, politician. I got it exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly... Many people would not be comfortable. Yes, None of us were including comfortable. Including you. I was not comfortable. That's what? why I said it's a gamble. Why did she do it? Why did she do it? Because uh, I think I can tell you why she did it. Um, first of all, uh, she has quite a lot of time for him as an individual. Uh, secondly, he was, of course, uh, hugely more popular than Michael Gove, who stabbed him in the back. Not a high bar. No, no, but they, they <laughs> I think we are in total agreement <laughs> on that issue, at least. Uh, but uh, I think the crucial point was the Brexit side actually won the, the referendum. They had to be involved at the highest levels of the government. Uh, Theresa May was actually on the Remain side, as was Philip Hammond, the Foreign Secretary, as was Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary. So I think uh, Boris was the natural choice in normal circumstances to be uh, one of her senior partners. But not at the Foreign Office, surely. Well, you, would, you have preferred him, would you prefer him as Chancellor of the Exchequer? <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in all seriousness, of course, what she has done 
she has reduced the power that normally is associated with the Foreign Secretary. Because there are now, uh, there's uh, Boris, who's Foreign Secretary, David Davis, who's in charge of the Brexit negotiations, and Liam Fox, who's dealing with all the international And do you trade. regard that as an entirely holy trinity? Well, there's something charming about the idea to say to these three, you got us into this mess, so you can get us out of it. Yes, but they're, they're playing for rather high stakes. Uh, yes, but she's going to be in charge. I mean, remember, they, this is not just true of Boris. Foreign secretaries or other cabinet ministers do not overrule prime ministers and do not overrule the cabinet. Now, such is so central will the Brexit negotiations be to the future of this country that it is absolutely certain, well, we know already, there is a cabinet committee chaired by the prime minister which is dealing with Brexit, so they will at most come with their recommendations. They may, they may pr succeed. Their recommendations may be accepted, but they may not be. And the person whose views will matter most will be the Prime Minister's. Not because it's Theresa May, but by virtue of the office. I can see that quite clearly, but I was thinking more of uh, Boris uh, careering around foreign embassies, spreading mayhem. Well, George Brown did it once, and we survived that. <laughs> he had an excuse, though. He was doing it at the bottom of a bottle. Yeah, well, uh, you may think that was an excuse. I think it was an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Let's... Um, Let's have a look, just for a minute, if we may, at Theresa May, because you didn't know she was going to become Prime Minister. You say in the book that... She didn't know she was going to become Prime Minister. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Everybody was surprised. But she, uh, you know, she had uh, said, uh, you had said in the book, that you didn't really have a particular rapport with, with David Cameron. He, we were you had a civilised relationship, yeah, but uh, not... It was a working relationship. It was a professional relationship. Exactly. So I wasn't a chum. What kind of relationship did you have with Theresa? Well, it's quite interesting that because I chaired for five years the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament, which has oversight of MI6, MI5, GCHQ, because she, as Home Secretary, she had responsibility for MI5. And so I had, over these five years, I got to know her a lot better than I did beforehand because we had a series of bilateral meetings. And she would also phone me if there was some announcement she was making relevant to the intelligence agencies. She would ring me up and, and give me advance notice of that. So I knew that she was hugely able. I knew that she was tough. And I knew that she was incredibly well briefed on her subject. What I did not anticipate was how ruthless she would be. Uh, and when she'd carried out that reshuffle, the ruthlessness of it wasn't just the number of people who were dismissed. It was the fact they included George Osborne, the number two in the... Ca I, I knew he wouldn't remain as chancellor, but to not even offer him an alternative post. That was very significant and not something I claim to have anticipated. There was also, of course, a, a, a very public falling out between Theresa May and Michael Gove. Yes. And um, Michael Gove is now um, warming the backbenches as well. Well, not just he. I mean, uh, the, one of the things that the Prime Minister will obviously know, she doesn't need me to say this, she will know it perfectly well, is if you have a number of people who were formerly very senior ministers uh, who are on the backbenches, not by their own choice, but because they've been sent there, uh, they will profess undying loyalty, uh, but that may not uh, last indefinitely. Uh, and idle hands you know, can create all sorts of problems. Uh, so there's going to have to be a coming together, as there is in any political party, if it can be done. Now, the Conservative Party, uh, of course, has been divided enormously over the Brexit issue for years. It's now actually less divided than it's ever been because the, the public, God bless them, have taken a decision. Less divided than ever before? Well, because... Can you, can you be serious? I am entirely serious. I'll tell you why. Uh, you do remember that the vast majority of people who in the Conservative Party voted Remain were also Eurosceptic to some degree, as are many of the public who voted. I voted Remain. 
I voted to stay in, but I'm, I've always been totally against the single currency, Britain joining it. I've been against Schengen. I've been against unnecessary integration. And, you know, th that is the whole point. The Conservative Party, with the exception of Michael Heseltine and Ken Clark and a small number of others, is overwhelmingly Eurosceptic. The division was between those Eurosceptics, those were more hardline ones who wanted us out completely, and the majority of the parliamentary party, but only a small majority, who, were, who thought of themselves as Eurosceptic, uh, but who concluded, on balance, it still remained sensible to remain in. Yes, when I became Foreign Secretary, Le Monde, uh, the French paper, described me as a Eurosceptic modéré. I, I liked the modéré. <laughs> But, I mean, we're just weeks, certainly months now, but really just weeks away from a time when high-profile cabinet ministers in a Conservative government were, yeah. were, were shouting each other, calling each other. Yeah. Well, yes, it was. Uh, but it doesn't suggest to me that this is a party united as never but, before. But hold on, no, hold on. The ones who actually, as it so happens, I didn't expect this to happen, but think that the cabinet ministers who were on the other side of the... who were Brexit, who were doing the shouting against the Prime Minister, where are they now, apart from Boris Johnson, Michael Gove? on the back benches, Ian Duncan Smith on the back benches, Theresa Villiers on the back benches, John Whittingdale on the back benches. So only Boris Johnson is the only Brexit cabinet minister who's still in the cabinet. Wish I could think of him as only. <laughs> but let's, get, let's go on, you, you talk about two um, existential questions um, that, that had preoccupied you in various um, roles, Malcolm. Uh, there was a European question we've been talking about a moment ago. The other one, of course, is the Scottish question. Now, yeah. uh, from various bits of this book, I, I deduced that you were a, you are, not where, you are a closet federalist? Uh, I, I'm pretty close to that, but that's not the term I would normally use for a very simple reason. I've taken the view, and this goes back 40 years, that in an ideal world, the United Kingdom ought to be a federal system, uh, like Canada, the United States, Australia, Germany. Uh, the problem is not Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland. The problem is the size of England, that you cannot actually have a proper functioning federal system if one of the four components, and it's only four, uh, is 80%, uh, 85% of the total. It just can't work. Now, John Prescott tried to do that by trying to persuade English regions to vote for their own regional assemblies. That was thrown out. The English don't want to have regional parliaments, but they do want decentralization of power. So I think what we're getting already, and it cheers me up enormously, I think in a typically British way, we are stumbling into a sort of quasi-federal system. We're, we're pretty well there already. Scotland's got a parliament, Welsh uh, have an assembly, Northern Ireland's got a parliament, and one of the big achievements of George Osborne, and it's unfinished business, is to decentralise massive control of resources to the major cities of England, so that Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Newcastle, and in future Birmingham, Bristol, other cities, will, instead of Whitehall, will be controlling resources and having some of the choices that the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Assembly have in, as to what they're... Uh, and so instead of Britain being a unitary system without any variety, uh, it's already a totally different United Kingdom. And what, well, the reason why I believe that the, that the United Kingdom is going to survive as a United Kingdom, including Scotland, is because what we have, and it's the benefit of an unwritten constitution, we not only have some sort of decentralization or devolution for all of Britain, including England, but it's different. So Scotland has a powerful parliament. Uh, Wales doesn't even have a parliament yet. Wales has an assembly, much less power at the moment. Northern Ireland is obliged by law to have automatic coalitions so that the Catholic and Protestant communities are both represented in any Northern Ireland government. 
And England has this decentralization. But we're having this conversation. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful vision you paint. It's happening. But it's it, not a vision. Well, it's there let, already. Well, let me tell you what else is happening. Um, we're, we're sitting in Edinburgh yep. um, post the election. Yep. Uh, the Labour Party has been all but wiped out. In, I in, can live in with that. I thought that would cause you <laughs> little distress, but the Conservative Party has, I'm we talking Westminster terminal, has one MP at Westminster. Uh, there are now an overwhelming uh, number uh, uh, at uh, Westminster, there's yeah, an yeah. overwhelming number of, of, um, of SNP uh, MPs now at Westminster. Mm. Meanwhile, in Holyrood, um, the Conservative Party now has more members than it's had in many years, but that's right. because of a proportional system to yep. which you're opposed. So no, I, I was always in favour of it for the Scottish Parliament. Just for us? Uh, no, well, for any part of the United Kingdom where you actually have a four-party system, not a two- or three-party system. I'm just anxious. I'm trying to tease out why you think that uh, we're all, uh, to use your words, muddling through to some kind yeah, of yeah. accidental quasi-federal system, when the election results would seem to suggest that the, the, the appetite for uh, home rule in Scotland has not been sated. Well, we, we will, that's something still to be tested. But I think, let me put it this way, uh, what we see at the moment is a situation where we're only less than two years from the referendum in Scotland, uh, which was a much bigger majority than the European referendum, 55 to 45, uh, and that's pretty healthy. Uh, it, the, all the recent opinion surveys suggest that opinion hasn't changed dramatically on the independence issue. So we know that the Scottish National Party as a party is incredibly strong, I don't for a moment minimize what uh, extraordinary historic achievement they have. But we also know a lot of people who vote for them aren't voting for independence. Uh, and what seems to have happened at the last Scottish elections, you mentioned how the Scottish Tories, to our own delightful astonishment, are now the official opposition in Scotland. Uh, I, for years, I uh, aspired to this golden moment when the Tory party might catch up with the Labour party. Uh, I didn't think that it would end up with uh, uh, as actually having more seats in the Holyrood than the Labour Party has. Uh, that is a, an, and maybe an irreversible achievement, because such are the problems the Labour Party faces. The Labour Party is an existential problem, uh, as is to, because it's not just Scotland. Uh, they f they f if there was a general election tomorrow, they would lose a whole bevy of seats to UKIP in the north of England. I take no pleasure in that. But that is what it looks likely uh, to be that would happen. But in the Scottish context, uh, the arguments against independence are stronger today than they were two years ago. Though you remember that the argument for another referendum, whether or not you agree with it, and obviously you don't, was that if, if there were a different result uh, sure, yeah. in the European referendum in Scotland than there was in England. Sure, but you know, if there was another referendum in Scotland next week, just think, compared just to two years ago, what's changed? First of all, the massive hole in the Scottish budget because of the collapse in the oil price, was it 10, 12 billion a year? that would have to be financed either by cutting spending or increasing taxes from Scots alone. Secondly, which currency would we use? If Scotland's going to be in the European Union when the rest of the United Kingdom is not, forget sharing the pound, that becomes literally impossible. It either has to be returned to the pound Scots or joining the euro. And the third thing is if the whole hypothesis is that Scotland would be in the single market when England, Wales and Northern Ireland weren't, then the Scottish-English border becomes a hard border for the first time since 1603. Or 1707, depending uh, on... I question. know, 1603, actually. That's uh, not just 1707, because uh, you, you've never had 
that border as a real border since the Union of the Crowns under James the, James the Sixth and First. Well, you're behaving, uh, if, I, if you don't want me saying so, like a lawyer, and you've laid Ooh. out some... Uh, that's, what, that's the argument you use when you haven't got a better one. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was... I was going to say you're behaving like a lawyer, laying out... Some of my best friends are lawyers. <laughs> regrettably, some of regrettably, some of mine as well. <laughs> but um, no, you're laying out like a lawyer, like the good lawyer you are. Of course, you're laying out a very plausible scenario. But of course, if there were to be another referendum, it wouldn't be next week. It would be perhaps 18 yeah. months or two years hence. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. by that time, I'd presumably, a great deal of work would have been done on the questions you were raising. Well, that's, that's a very interesting point, because you know, in some ways, if you wanted to go for a referendum from a nationalist point of view, do it now... Uh, because the emotions are higher. You can say Scotland voted to stay in and uh, the England voted to leave and we're being dragged out against our wish, all that sort of thing. That's an e essentially an emotional argument, uh, forgetting the fact that 40% of Scots also voted for Brexit, as it so happens. 38. All right. So almost 40%. Almost 40%. Uh, and the, the reality is, you say, well, a lot more work will be done in this. If, yeah, but you've still got to find a way of bridging 10 to 12 billion in the budget you still got to find uh, which currency you're going to use, because it won't be the pound, and only are two other alternatives. One is a Scottish currency, uh, with all the uncertainty that that implies, and the other is joining the euro, which nobody in Scotland wants, which is why the SNP, who used to believe in the euro, dumped that policy some years ago. And the third is a hard border. Now, you, you don't resolve these problems by working on it. These are real issues. If Scots want independence, they'll get independence. Uh, and if they really want independence, they'll say, well, too bad. We'll have a Scottish currency. We'll have a hard border at Berwick-on-Tweed. And, we, and we'll f cut spending or put up taxes. That's fine. If people really want independence, that's what they'll choose. But most people, I suspect in Scotland, say at the moment we have the best of both worlds. Can I take your argument about, uh, uh, you were saying that it would make sense politically to have um, an election while emotions were running high. Um, uh, I'm not arguing a, a for it, no, I'm no, no, saying. You, you, could say, you could see why that would make sense. I don't sh share that view, but that doesn't matter. But I wonder if you have the same view about an election, a general election in England, when the Labour Party in England is uh, in yeah. the middle of, uh, of, a, of a contest. No, I, 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 if, if the purpose of having a general election was to give the Conservatives a much larger majority, if that was the purpose, thinking behind it, uh, I think I can understand that, but I wouldn't myself support it. Uh, for two reasons. I think it wouldn't be the only thing that happened. I think UKIP would do very well, particularly in the north of England against the Labour Party, and I don't want UKIP to do well. I don't approve of them. Uh, but I think in addition to that, I think in a healthy democracy, it's about time we had a decent opposition in the UK, and we don't have one, and that's bad for the government as well as for the country. I want to let the audience in, Michael, but there's one other thing that I must bring up because you've, you touched on it in the book once or twice. You had... Um, a difficult time with both uh, the Telegraph and, and dispatches when you and Jack Straw were accused of... of um, lend All's well that ends well. Yes, but that's, I'd just like to go through that, uh, you to go through that with us because the, the filmed you covertly um, talking about whether or not you would be able to uh, use your services for a fee to lobby on behalf of... No, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong already. I, I, it seems to me my wee hobby tonight to be wrong already. But if I, let, let me start again. You had a problem with the Telegraph. Shall I say the what the problem was? I know yes, what the problem was. <laughs> okay. I, I was, uh, this is all ancient history now, but never mind. I was invited uh, to, uh, to meet these people as to whether I might wish to uh, serve on an advisory board to advise them on investment mainly in Eastern Europe and various other parts of, the, of, of Europe. 
It turned out they were bogus. It was a what's called a fishing expedition. They did exactly the same with Jack Straw. Uh, it's all in the book, anybody who wants to read about it. It was investigated by the Standards Commission of Parliament, uh, who not only threw out the allegations as completely worthless, uh, but said she was deeply critical of both Channel 4 and The Telegraph for cut-and-paste journalism and distorting uh, by using bits on television that did not represent the true discussion. So when you said that you were self-employed and you didn't have a salary... Yeah, I'll give you an example about that. Uh, yeah, like I did say that. And, I say, and if you look at the, tra the transcript, is available, and it was quite clear from the transcript, at that stage we were talking about the business interests I had, which is as a non-executive director uh, or as a consultant, and for which I do not get a salary. It's quite evident if you read the transcript. They presented it on the program as if I was pretending as an MP I didn't get a salary, which is manifestly absurd. Right. Well, on that note, we're going to let the audience in um, and see if, you, see if you have better luck than I do. Um, <laughs> There was one thing I should have mentioned in this, in, to do with your relationship with Margaret Thatcher, which I loved, and you said that when she was coming up here to do her famous sermon on the mound, yes. you tried to stop her saying you in Scotland, which was very pejorative, so to, to your horror, she, she didn't, she, and she said we in Scotland. Yeah, she, well, she didn't just say it once, she kept saying it, and, yes. and, and she, I mean, she understood the problem, she was just too, she wasn't able to get the, the nuances right. And the imagination wasn't her forte, was it? Well, it was in some on the issues that she was really interested in. It. And she, I think you're being a bit unkind, but you're not no. one of her greatest fans, are you? Correct. <laughs> How very shrewd of you to notice. <laughs> could we I have, noticed. Could we have some questions from the audience? There's a gentleman. Was it? Could you just wait till the mic comes, please? Yep, gentleman in the front row. Having had a reputation as an extremely good constituency MP cool. up until 1997, how did it feel to lose? to the extremely curious and extremely reluctant Mrs. Clark. Well, representing Pentlands was the great joy of my life, and I, as you say, I represented for 23 years. Uh, I, I, I remember once speaking in the south of England, and the chairman had clearly never heard of the Pentland Hills after which the constituency was named, got completely confused, and introduced me as the Member of Parliament for Penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said I rather wish I had been. But <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the other great joy was um, when I was uh, just, I'd just become the uh, local MP and um, a, a young girl was asked, um, why, why is Malcolm Rifkin famous? And she memorably replied, because his brother is the optician in Morningside. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, while I'm on that theme... Uh, it, 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 was one, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, on one occasion, at round about that same time, I was canvassing in Penthams, and I knocked on the door, and the person answered the door, and I said, uh, uh, and it was one of my canvassers, it wasn't me, one of my canvassers knocked on the door, and the person answered it, and the canvasser said, uh, I'm calling on behalf of Mr. Rifkind. We hope you'll be able to give him your support. And she said, no, I don't see why not. These are very good, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> he will certainly continue to have my support. So we we quit while we were ahead. <laughs> I, can, I can exclusively reveal, as they say in my trade, that the erstwhile Morningside optician is also with us tonight. Though I know, that's why I made that plug. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case he needed the support, which he quite clearly doesn't. Can we have some more questions from the floor, please? There, thank you very much. Could we have a little more light on the back, if possible? The dress, very enjoyable. Um, you just said a little while ago that... 
that pound sterling was not an option. Only an hour and a half ago, Mervyn King, sitting in the same chair that you were saying, was actually saying that was the only option. And I would like you to comment. Well, I, I wasn't obviously present when Mervyn said that, but I suspect he was not talking about what an independent Scotland would do in the Europe. Well, if he did, uh, he's, he's entitled to his view. I can't, I can't begin to understand how that could possibly work. How can, how can you have... Well, hold on. If you, have, if you have a single currency, you have a single currency in the, Euro, in the European Union because they're all in the same political body, and they hope one day it will be even more integrated. If the whole hypothesis uh, is that Scotland has become a separate state, from the, it's no longer in the United Kingdom, that Scotland is in the EU, but the United Kingdom is not, on what, and, uh, on what possible basis can you share a currency? You can either have, the, if you're in the European Union, you're expected as a new country to join the euro. Uh, if you can't do that right away, you're expected to have your own currency as uh, a number of other existing countries in, in Eastern Europe or Sweden or Denmark uh, currently do. The idea that you can, uh, I'm sorry, you, you don't, you know, each individual is entitled to their view, but I think it is manifestly unworkable. Yeah, thank, thank you all the same. Yeah, for the next 30 years, I think, probably. <laughs> I should say that I overheard uh, the Lord King and Sir Malcolm arranging to have breakfast together uh, tomorrow, so perhaps they can... I will ask him. I, I'm going <laughs> I shall be none the wiser, but better informed. <laughs> you spoke about um, the recreation of a hard border from Berwick-on-Tweed, but there's been another hard border which may be coming in, back into existence with Brexit between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Which of those two hard borders would you prefer? Because uh, Northern Ireland also voted to remain, and would it be better for Scotland and Northern Ireland to form a Celtic Northern country, and we have a less challenging hard border no. from Berwick on Tweed. Well, no, uh, I, I think that's ingenious, but I don't think that one would run. But I think the Northern Ireland one will be actually a lot easier than is currently anticipated. Um, the, 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 there's a huge amount of a, a goodwill throughout the European Union that the achievements of the Irish Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland reconciliation have to be preserved. Fortunately, because Ireland, Ireland is an island, and it's a sort of de minimis situation. The numbers of people involved are very small. I don't know what the solution will be, but I'm entirely convinced that a solution will be uh, achieved that will mean there is not a hard border between Northern Ireland and the, the Republic. It won't be logical, but I was once told that logic is the art of going wrong with confidence. Uh, I think if the political... Uh, the great thing I discovered about all the years I worked in the European Union uh, was that... Uh, it's about compromise and it's about negotiation. And when you're trying to find solutions, you find solutions. When you're trying to find problems, you find problems. Now, for all sorts of reasons, mainly because of Spain and Catalonia and the Basque country and other secessionist parties in continental Europe, there will not be a consensus that would enable Scotland just to easily become part of the European Union. Some countries would have their own national interest, uh, which would make it very difficult indeed. In the case of Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, all the political will will be the other way around, and therefore some solution will be found. Lady in the front here. 
Do you see a new central party emerging from the Labour divisions? Well, I, I'm not really competent to say on that. I don't know. But I, I think it's unlikely uh, because they, went, they made that attempt under Roy Jenkins and Shirley Williams when the SDP was formed, David Owen, and that <coughs> turned out to be very unsuccessful. So I doubt if many in the Labour Party want to go that way. Uh, if Corbyn, as is likely, wins, I cannot see the Parliamentary Labour Party simply bowing to his authority. My guess is, they won't say it at the moment, but my guess what will happen is that Corbyn will be <coughs> leader of the Labour Party and the Labour MPs, or a large number of them, will simply operate as a separate opposition within Parliament, uh, determining their own policy. They will all be deselected and they will put up Labour candidates to fight Corbyn Labour candidates at the general election and then the decision will be taken not by Labour members but by those who normally vote Labour as to what kind of Labour Party they want. In other words, the, the ballot box will determine the outcome ultimately. You make but, it all sound so simple. Well, if it, I mean, maybe it isn't, but I can't think... You know, when you rule out any other option, whatever's left becomes the most likely scenario. And I can't see any other option. I cannot see 100 Labour MPs suddenly becoming left-wing and accepting Corbyn as their leader. They all think he's a complete disaster. So what are they going to do for the next three... The, let's assume there isn't a general election. We've got three years, at least, before a general election. They either go into the same lobbies as he does, or they don't. And if they don't, that's going to be, have to be institutionalised in some way. But how would the logistics of that work in terms of... just in terms of PMQs? Well, there's nothing, there's nothing to... Well, it depends how many of them there are. If there are something like two... <coughs> let's, at the moment, 170 Labour MPs refuse to accept his leadership... About 50 are on his side. Now, if these 170 remain united, well, they may not. Some may slip away. But if they, or if they or most of them remain united, they could declare themselves the main opposition because they would be larger than any other group in Parliament. And in, in the way the House of Commons works, they'd be entitled to be treated as a, a force in their own right. I'm not saying that will happen. I just can't see anything more likely. Watch this space. Yeah, absolutely. More questions. Yes. Gentleman there. I've been allowed another five minutes because we were late starting, so if there's somebody else who wants to speak next, could you put up your hand just so we can make sure we can get you in? Hello, I'd just uh, like to hear your comments on post-Brexit. There apparently has been a change in the discourse. Um, it has become, if I may use two normative words, more extreme and a bit more poisonous, uh, especially within the right uh, of the political spectrum. Uh, your comments on essentially, it, does this represent a substantial change in how people are approaching politics as a, a way of shouting so you, louder? Did you say post-Brexit's become worse? Well, I mean, apparently so. If you in can, what if way? You, I, I'm not conscious of that. If you can, apparently it's, it, it has become acceptable to be a bit more racist. Oh, sorry. To put right. it to, to to on the line. And also, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the uh, a candidate for the prime ministership had some fairly strange opinions on homosexuality. Okay. okay. I, mean, I think, first of all, I think what happened in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit result uh, was some of the, 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 the lice in the woodworm uh, came out. They've always been there, but they decided it was more respectable, at least in the first few days, to uh, display their prejudices against some of their fellow citizens. Uh, I don't think that is continuing in the same way. They certainly hope it isn't, but I don't think it is uh, either. And remember, you know, in the same period we're talking about, uh, London did something that no other European capital could do at this moment in time. It elected, uh, without rancor, a Muslim as mayor of London. 
And my friends in Paris and in Berlin and in Rome and in Madrid say that could not happen at this moment in time in their capital cities. The, the mood just wouldn't uh, permit that. So I think we've got to get these things in perspective. Uh, in terms of what uh, Enoch Powell uh, notoriously prophesied, uh, we don't have rivers of blood. Uh, we have community relations which are overwhelmingly amongst the best in Europe. Not, they're not perfect, long way from perfect, and, but they're not only amongst the best, they're, they're a damn sight better than they were 30 years ago. And I don't see any evidence of that changing. There, have been, there has been a spike, however, in, apparently, in racially motivated... Uh, but that, uh, what I'm saying is I don't think these are people who have suddenly become racist. There have always been a number of racist individuals and when you get something like the Brexit vote, which brought you out... You don't worry, though, that the, the fields have been given permission to... to, to well, they haven't been given permission, but I certainly By worry... By the vote, I mean... Well, sure, in the short term, that may indeed be what they think they've got. But I don't see that level of activity uh, continuing in the last month or so. I mean, I think in the first couple of weeks, there was some... It wasn't, it wasn't so much racism, it was general xenophobia from certain individuals. Uh, and and, and was, uh, that is disturbing. I'm not saying it's not, not worrying. But I don't see it. These I, I I don't see any evidence that these were people who were broad-minded before and who have changed. I think they've just come out of the woodwork. Right. Do we? Yes. Your work in the intelligence area. Mm. The um, a couple of years ago in this room we had the uh, Guardian. I can't see where the microphone is. I'm sorry. See you. A, a couple of years ago in this room we had the Guardian journalist who worked with uh, Mr. Snowden. Yes. And he he actually mentioned you several times. And he explained that the, the work they'd done was in the public interest because he felt that the government had been behaving improperly. So do you feel that the work that Mr. Snowden did uh, was in the public interest or did it damage our security? Well, I, I don't think it was in the public interest. Let me explain why I say that. Uh, I, I think there are, uh, I have no problem with whistleblowers uh, who, have a, uh, who discover an illegality or uh, something uh, unethical in their place of work and who, having informed the powers that be and got nothing done, uh, having informed other people and got nothing done, eventually go to the press. I think that's a very healthy development and one that I wouldn't condemn. That's not what Snowden did. Snowden stole a million, one and a half million, top secret documents. He did not, and he admits this, uh, read more than a tiny fraction of them. He wouldn't have understood the vast majority of them because of the subject matter, because he was not specialist in the areas concerned. And he simply, having stolen them, then handed them over to newspapers uh, to do what they liked with them. In the interests of freedom and civil liberties, he announced this in the two most authoritarian countries in the world, in China, and then took refuge in Russia, uh, both of whom have intelligence agencies whose main function is to keep these governments in power uh, and who are the antithesis of civil liberties. Now, that, what that says to me is that Snowden was not a whistleblower. Uh, he may have believed in what he was doing, but what he was doing was a political act, uh, not one of identifying grievances. You, you, you just, that he could have g handed these documents to the police, to, the, to his member of parliament, or to congressmen as an American. He could have done all sorts of things that he didn't do, and that's because he wanted to make a political act. And, I, and, I, and we know uh, that an enormous amount of damage has been done uh, because of the extent to which uh, the, the terrorists and, people, and serious criminals uh, now know ways in which you can deal with encrypted material to make sure that you're uh, plotting 
of either illegality or criminality or terrorism can be uh, communicated through the Internet, uh, and it's now much more difficult for that to be intercepted. Ladies and gentlemen, um, um, have you got a very quick question? Yeah, a can quick you answer. A, can you do a quick answer? Very quick answer, right? That's probably the question I should be asking. I just wanted to ask about the lack of a sense of shame in politics nowadays. For example, David Cameron and you know, uh, giving awards to all his cronies in, in the honours list. And what do you think that's about? The complete lack of shame. Uh, you know, that obviously don't care what the general public think anymore. They just go ahead and do well, what they want. Well, I I, th I think that I mean it's a, it's a very d difficult issue this one because it's not. This is nothing new. Britain compared to 100 years ago is much better now. In the days of Lloyd George, there was actually a tariff of you paid so much and you got an earldom, you got so much in a viscountcy, so much in a peerage, so much in a knighthood. And it was, a, you know, it was literally sold, honours were sold uh, in a way that is inconceivable. Now you just have to give money to political parties. Well, you do, no. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I actually think we, are moving, we will be moving to a situation where you, you can't give money to political parties and get recognition uh, 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 simultaneously. I think it does have to be tightened up. Uh, but what I, do, I don't believe there was a golden age. Uh, and I believe that all, in all democracies around the world, uh, there, there, are, there is this dilemma of how democratic parties raise the money you need. Because the alternative to raising it from people who are prepared to give it is to raise it through the tax system, to tax the public, to subsidize political parties. And many would say that's even worse. So that, that is the problem. If we had another O, we could translate that into American elections, and, and, but, but we haven't and we won't. Um, could I just say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because I, I, I found this an enormously engaging book, not just because um, um, as contemporaries, obviously I lived through a lot of the period that Mark was writing about. It's a, it's a fascinating glimpse of that period in our history. And I shall not be at all surprised to learn it's written with a great deal of humour. Um, so... Malcolm will be around in the signing tent to sign copies of this book, but I, I, I have to inform Malcolm and all of his friends that in order to get to the signing tent, you have to turn left and left again when you go out. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was a catch. I knew there was a catch. And you, and you end up in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, please join me in thanking Malcolm Milken, but you probably already have. Thank you very much. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.